Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday, another Monday. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dave McConaughey, and she is... Bree Fallon. It's lovely to talk to you again, Dave. How are you going? I am going quite well. We are enjoying the crisp fall weather here. Out my window across the street is a beautiful red maple, and I can just enjoy it while I'm grading papers and Zooming with the students and and trying to do all the the new elements of uh, academic life under um, COVID-19 restrictions. That's what we're all all dealing with uh, continuously. That sounds much more pleasant than the hot weather that we're experiencing here in Australia. Yesterday, it was 35 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it is hot for October. It is very hot. Even though this episode is appearing a little bit later, I do expect sympathy for how hot it has been in October. Yeah. And, you know, normally talking about the weather might seem incidental or casual to us, but actually uh, it's very germane today. today's uh, conversation, isn't it? Yes, this was all part of a secret plan to subtly introduce this week's episode because this week we have the RSP's Candice Mixon and she spoke to Dr. Gretel Van Weeren on climate changes, new approaches to environmental and agricultural ethics. Take it away. All right, listeners, I am here today with Dr. Gretel Van Weeren. She is an accomplished scholar, and she's currently at Michigan State University in the Department of Religious Studies, working within the fields of environmental ethics, religion and nature, agricultural and food ethics, as well as religion and nonprofit organizations. She's the author of a few books, including Restored to Earth, Christianity, Environmental Ethics, and Ecological Restoration in 2013, as well as Food, Farming, and Religion, Emerging Ethical Perspectives, and that's her 2018 publication. And her most recent publication in terms of books is Listening at Lookout Creek, Nature and Spiritual Practice, and that was out in 2019 from Oregon State University Press. She's also a member of a number of working groups and roundtables and blogs, all devoted to the themes that we'll be talking about here. So we are so happy to have on the podcast Dr. Van Weeren to discuss her ongoing research on food ethics and especially climate change. So welcome to the Religious Studies Project, Dr. Van Weeren. Thank you, Candace. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So one thing I love to just get people talking about is is sort of origin stories and thinking about um, maybe if you could bring us to um, what brought you to the current and sort of past research projects that you've been working on, on religion, farming, food, and climate, and maybe what what activated for you that this was such an essential topic to be looking into? So I think that there are a couple of impetuses, at least, for my work in religion and the environment, and specifically with the Food and Agriculture book, Food, Farming, and Religion. And they stem from my earlier professional life. I started right after college working with several nonprofit organizations that were committed to anti-hunger, anti-poverty, social justice efforts, and uh, did that kind of work for for five five years or so. And my first graduate degree, was in international agriculture and rural development from Cornell. And so that focus early on in my professional life shaped, I think, eventually my interest in working on a food ethics 
book. And then also prior to going back for my PhD in religious ethics, I worked in upstate rural New York as a parish pastor where most of my parishioners were either dairy farmers or came from generations of dairy farmers or were some way associated with farming in upstate New York. And I was involved then with several farmer advocacy groups locally as well as internationally with anti-economic globalization groups, inter-ecumenical groups. And so I think that work early on with nonprofit organizations and, and agricultural issues contributed to the book project. And then here at Michigan State, we have quite an agricultural focus as Michigan's land-grant institution. We were started as an agricultural college. And so now that I've been at Michigan State going on 10 years, I've had the opportunity to work with many working in agricultural fields within the humanities and also social science and natural sciences. And in 2016, I was PI on a grant from the Mellon Foundation, a Humanities Without Walls grant on the new ethics of food that brought together numerous researchers and practitioners at Michigan State in collaboration with scholars and and community partners at Ohio State and Penn State at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so this group was just an incredibly rich and interdisciplinary group in which to be a part of and also really helped shape the form, the ultimate form of the book, both in terms of conversation partners and then also the book's focus, uh, both on community-based farming groups and on concrete problems, environmental problems in the study of food and agricultural ethics. Awesome. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, I've, I've really loved seeing um, in the different projects that you've been on how many, how, how much interdisciplinarity has been involved there, and especially with um, the sciences and thinking about your place at your particular university um, and the opportunities that affords. I think that's really brilliant that you've been able to kind of bridge all of those um, folks that might have seen themselves as, as further away from, from religious studies or something like that. Um, so I think that that's, that's great. Um, so you obviously work a lot with food and agriculture. Um, and so shifting a bit more to the religious study side of things, I mean, what is it about food that's so either integral or, or it's sometimes touchy to deal with in this discussion of thinking about um, religious groups' response to crises such as climate change? So I think food in particular is a topic that opens conversations about touchy subjects like climate change, as you say, um, because everybody eats and everybody not only needs to eat, but oftentimes religious groups eat in a way that builds community, but also religious groups eat in a way that excludes community. And so it's a topic that I think is ripe for not only opening questions about community in terms of religious interpretations of that, but also in terms of thinking spiritually about food and 
what that means, what it has meant historically and presently. And I think uh, talking about the roots of food and uh, one of the things that religion helps us do as both an academic study, but also as a a personal practice is think through um, where things come from and the meanings of those things. And so I think in terms of though connecting food with climate, to have those conversations about um, if we do think of food in a spiritual way, um, what does that, what does that mean in terms of, you know, whether our food is creating harm for others, for ourselves, uh, for the earth, and those kinds of questions of tracing food's origins and what kinds of meanings and impacts those choices have on ourselves and others, I think, is ripe for kind of religious conversation and discussion and can often open those questions in ways that that we might not otherwise have them. Early on when I was working on this book, I was invited to uh, teach a, a class at a uh, seminary on the western side of the state, Western Theological Seminary, which is a Reformed Church in America seminary, which tends to be more conservative uh, politically and socially. And that food class um, really allowed, I think, seminarians to ask questions about climate and the environment in ways they wouldn't have otherwise. And so that was in 2014. So that was when I was first beginning working on the book project. And it really opened my eyes to, I think, I I was initially thinking about starting the book around concrete environmental problems and not focusing as much on community-based groups. And it also forced me to uh, begin thinking more about how explicitly religious groups were engaging the issues as a way to connect perhaps with um, religious people that weren't thinking about food as a climate issue. So that was helpful in um, helping me think, too, about connecting more with uh, religious community-based groups. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned that you, you know, thinking more about, yeah, concrete environmental problems. So again, thinking about the specific example of, of climate change and the way that many agricultural um, methods have have accelerated this. Um, and you've, you've researched that and you've gone over that in many of your um, works and publications. So I wonder if you have some more examples for us of besides this, um, you know, Western um, seminary that you mentioned, um, of how some religious groups that you've studied are dealing with the current time um, in terms of relating to climate change or perhaps thinking of this as a particular era or sort of, yeah, a, an era that needs to be either addressed or kind of, um, you know, dealt with? Most of the community-based farms that I studied always had climate in the back of their minds, even if they wouldn't use that term specifically. And so um, whether it meant whether it meant farming in low water use kinds of ways, either because the climate de- climate change demanded it because of water use issues such as 
at Abundant Table Farm in in Thousand Oaks, California, because of the water and uh, water issues particular to the Pacific Northwest, um, but also in terms of explicitly thinking about, say, carbon footprint when it comes to animal agriculture or other kinds of climate related things. And so I think all of the groups had that in the back of their mind um, because most of the groups that I studied also were using organic methods and were very conscious about issues of uh, not only water pollution and air pollution and soil health and all of those sorts of things, but also thinking about climate issue as an environmental justice issue. So oftentimes um, the farms had uh, had links and connections with community groups or explicitly mentor training programs in urban agriculture uh, for for raising up a next generation of climate friendly farmers. Um, one example I can think of. I, there are many examples in the book, but one example in particular was Coastal Roots Farm in Encinitas, California, which is a, a farm spinoff of the Jewish environmental organization, Hazone. And the year that I visited there, they were preparing the farm for a, a sh- the Shemitah year, which is the year in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus, where the early Israelites were said to have let the land go fallow for uh, restorative and liberation purposes, and they were preparing the for- the farm to literally go fallow for the year and to plant it with cover crops that were restorative. And they built a beautiful labyrinth. Um, but in terms of connecting with climate, that idea that not only for for coastal roots, the the kind of connection between Sabbath and rest and the need to, to give the land a rest, um, both for spiritual and ecological kind of purposes, and the way in which with climate change now, um, even thinking more broadly about the idea of giving certain things a rest so that the earth systems can replenish themselves, I think is just one example of the way in which a, a farm was using ancient ancient spiritual wisdom and and reapplying and reinterpreting it in terms of the circumstance we find ourselves with with uh, climate change. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, thanks for the that nice example and sort of that specific story related to um, yeah renewing some sort of ancient practices in the in the current time. Um, something else I wanted to ask about though. So we've talked a little bit about thinking through farming and um, let's say care of the earth, like um, preserving water and making land sort of better and and giving it rest in order for it to be more productive at other times. Um, So I just wonder if you might be able to speak more to animal agriculture and maybe some changes that you've seen um, specifically related to um, whether topics like vegetarianism or veganism or um, particular um, attitudes around, I guess, eating animals in terms of how um, how that's being brought to light in terms of the current climate um, crisis and, and change that we're dealing with. 
I think there is growing awareness just generally about the role that animal agriculture plays in creating climate change. I think that has been slow to the conversation, and there are many documentaries and books that document why, especially in the United States, um, we're so reluctant to see animal agriculture as inherently part of the climate problem. I think um, in the groups that I studied, and I focused on food food and farming efforts in the Abrahamic faith traditions, there's a huge variety of views on the moral considerations of eating animals. And in each of those traditions, you can find groups of people who believe strongly that spirit, that their faith um, means that, that veganism is the appropriate and ethical posture all the way to those who don't think eating animals is maybe a moral issue at all. Um, the groups that I worked with had a variety of takes on that. Most of them were, were only farming vegetables, I would say, with maybe some, some chickens. Um, and then there were those farms that were working or trying to include animal agriculture, animal husbandry on their farms in ways that were explicitly considering spiritual, moral, and ecological concerns. So um, one of the farms that I highlight in the book is Norwich Meadows Farm in upstate New York, which is a community-supported agriculture, um, and it's farmed according to uh, certain Islamic principles, and they were working very hard with with agriculture, um, mostly chickens, to to practice in ways that were both um, halal and ecological, and also that thought a lot about justice to farm workers. And so that's one example, at least. Um, of animal agriculture that was attain, uh, attempting to farm in ways that were both um, sustainable and ecological and spiritual. Now, granted, uh, these farms that I looked at that included agriculture farmed on a very small scale. So those are different kinds of questions than, say, if we're talking about um, the mass production of, of very, very large concentrations of animal agriculture, which I think is a different kind of question in terms of how religious groups are engaging with public policy advocacy around, um, around asking ethical questions of very large scale, scale animal agriculture. And I think you can also find that, that advocacy work around um, larger global public policy questions in, in many of the re religious traditions that, that I studied, um, but I mostly was focusing on the smaller scale practices of agriculture and how spiritually oriented farms were making sense of those issues if, if they kept animals. Yeah, thank you Yeah, so much for that. Um, this is a topic that's very interesting to me, me personally, but um, I'll, I'll keep going a little bit. Um, I was thinking through some of the the questioning that you're offering about sort of seeing animal um, consumption 
as, you know, going back to that community aspect of certain festivals um, that are, surra- are are based on particular eatings of, of animal products or particular farming practices. Um, and I'm just thinking generally about, you know, religious reform and sort of a question of how we interpret um, past tradition as whether it's sacrosanct or something that can be changed. Um, and so I think your research is kind of weaving in really well here as far as looking at some of these farms instead of perhaps just texts or something like that, that almost this is a a material way of looking at um, different reform and ethical reform movements. And I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but that's just sort of where I'm seeing it because often we can think of, you know, texts as leading the way, but I feel like the examination and fieldwork in particular farms is a, is a material way of looking at, at those advances. Yeah, thanks for raising that. I think that was one of the things that really interested me about visiting and studying farm work in particular, which not everyone would think is a legitimate a legitimate topic in religious studies, um, or even, you know, to start there um, with small-scale farms as a kind of uh, first source for thinking yeah. through ethical questions. But I really do think that looking to the ways in which, as you said, some of these community groups are rethinking maybe traditional notions of how animals were used, either in terms of animal sacrifice or um, in certain ritual activities, and really rethinking um, not only how animals are conceived in religious traditions that that used animals and sacrifice and other sorts of things, but also now how we rethink ritual itself and what counts as a kind of ritual and and um, what counts as a kind of low and high ritual, if you will. And I think many of the groups that are working with the land, whether it's in food and agriculture or whether it's in land restoration or whether it's in issues of, of property and land ownership um, or other types of things, I think are really thinking about this as a sacred activity in a, in and of itself, even if it's not a sacred activity um, that's that's you know in, instituted in doctrine or text, as you say, um, or even historically. But but thinking through what counts as a sacred practice and what makes something sacred, I think um, many of these groups are are doing whether they use that language or not, um, they're kind of reflecting back to their communities. This is a, this is a sacred, meaningful activity or it can be and, um, helping think through some pretty fundamental, um, spiritual questions in, in those ways too, that, that I found really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I have a, another little question, um, that maybe follows up on that or something I'm kind of thinking about is that, um, many of us who are listening, um, you know, this podcast sort of gets audiences, um, both from professors to sometimes students as we assign these things. Um, and then also just people that are generally interested in different aspects of, of religious studies. Um, but I did have a question that might be more pedagogically oriented in which many of the listeners might teach some of these 
Abrahamic, so to speak, um, traditions, especially as you do in your 2018 publication related to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, and I wonder what, you know, maybe advice would you have for us or, or ways to think about integrating um, either food or ethics and environmental ethics, maybe in some of the ways that we think through religious traditions beyond um, beyond textual approaches or beyond um, sort of rigid ritual practices, or, or maybe what ways has that af- affected your teaching as well, perhaps? So pedagogically speaking, and really per the method of the book, one thing that I do in every one of my class periods, and one thing um, that I do no matter what subject I'm teaching, whether it's an intro to religion class or religion and the environment more explicitly, is I think a really good tool for engaging a particular tradition and connecting with food or environment is to, to, to try to find some groups and actual communities that are working on the issues as a kind of entree and intersection with a particular tradition or with a a particular um, aspect of tradition. And so I have a colleague in Jewish studies here at Michigan State, Lori Yarez, who is uh, perhaps going to use a chapter from the book or an essay on that I wrote on coastal roots, farms, and worldviews for a a section that she teaches an intro to religion on the globalization of religion in terms of the kind of wider way to think about uh, Jewish practices. And so I think to either introduce food or the environment as an example of either modern expansion of thinking about religion or to just introduce um, a, a kind of aspect of practice each week in a class, either by highlighting the work of a particular religious group in that tradition that's working on food or the environment to talk about and analyze. Um, of course, you can find many, many, many things mm-hmm. on YouTube or, or whatever. Um, but I think in terms of engaging students, probably the way I've been able to engage students the most in thinking through how environmental issues and food issues explicitly relate and are being interpreted by religious groups, um, for better or worse, um, is, is simply by introducing wor- work that, that people are doing on the ground or what they're thinking about in practical ways. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for that. I've Already, as I was prepping for speaking with you, I I wondered, like, you know, could I redo the whole last like three weeks of, of some of my classes this <laughs> semester? Um, the answer is probably not right now, but um, <laughs> there are there are certainly questions that I want to work in more um, going forward after engaging with some of your work. So thank you for that. Um, finally, we need to wrap up, but. Um, I wanted to ask about any future directions or any projects or things that you're particularly excited about working with right now that you might want to mention with us or um, or give us a, a preview of. So one of the things that I'm very excited about right now that we started in the Department of Religious Studies at Michigan State that I've been putting a lot of time into is that we began a concentration in our department in nonprofit leadership. 
several years ago as a way to both offer our majors a professional track, since many of our majors did go into nonprofit or public benefit work. And that has just been a fabulous way to both attract majors as well as give a, a, a broader kind of foothold for religious studies in the humanities at our institution. And now we are working on developing an online master's program in nonprofit leadership that we're hoping to launch in about a year. But one of the things that we think about down the line is um, thinking about nonprofit leadership as a kind of uh, form of what what others are calling or, or some others are calling in, in my in my department, um, one of my colleagues. And I know others are using it, the idea of applied religious studies, and and we're still in the process of defining what that means. But the idea, I think, of thinking about applied religious studies is something that I'm very interested in exploring, um, both just with my teaching, but also with others. I'm hoping at some point at the American Academy of Religion to have some kind of panel or some sort of discussion around how we're engaging religious studies with with undergraduates, but also um, within the humanities, being able to to continue to work on this. And then in terms of uh, what I'm working on, I started working on a book on place and the contested notion of place, and I tentatively titled it Staying Put, uh, Place in an Age of Planetary Uncertainty. And I tentatively titled that before the quarantine. So it's <laughs> Oh boy. It's bringing, it's taking on all sorts of new meanings, but that's that's the next kind of book project I'm working on right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for meeting with us. Um, and um, yeah, look forward to your future work and, and yeah, thanks again. Thanks so much and thanks for your great work. Now, listening to that episode, I was thinking about it, Dave, didn't you do your graduate work in California? Absolutely, I did, and and in fact, just down the road from some of the sites that are that are mentioned, uh, Dr. Van Weeren was speaking about Thousand Oaks, California, and I lived right up the road for for almost eight years. the The challenges in California that are that are being faced by uh, communities on the ground that are working with climate change are extraordinary right now. There's huge pressures about water. There's huge pressures. Uh, about fire. Uh, and right now, um, many hundreds of thousands of acres of fire um, are, are coursing through California, putting many lives at risk and uh, farms at risk and homes at risk. And this is one of a number of, of uh, consequences, uh, aggressive fire seasons, longer fire seasons, fire seasons that have huge impacts. One of the things that, that I think that Brianne and I both feel uh, about this is that there's an urgency here for our field to adapt to the realities of the changing climate and its impact on us. Under the COVID restrictions, I think a lot of us have have realized the opportunity for, for us to directly look at the world around us and to apply our research methods and the topics that we find interested in, see them uh, being acted out in real time and current events. That's absolutely been the case there's been so much really uh, amazing work about 
how religious communities have responded to coronavirus and the adaptations that they've had to make in order to to deal with lockdowns and restrictions. And the same thing I think we'll find in the next 20 to, to 50 years that environmental uh, ethics, environmental studies, climate change approaches to religious studies are going to be front and center. They'll be inescapable no matter what area or method you're going to be working on. Um, unless it's uh, the past before climate change is an issue, if you're working on contemporary uh, folks, if you're uh, dealing with ethnography or, or um, political science or any of these things, it will be inescapable. And I think this episode is one of a number that we're going to feature in in the future that deal with the ways of preparing our field for this confrontation with um, a, a hugely impactful uh, future that we have for ourselves. I, I know you too, Bree, uh, in Australia have dealt so, with such serious fires um, recently, and so I hope that this is an opportunity for for people across the the globe to really take take a look at this and use the tools of our field to create conversations that uh, promote the general welfare of, of humans and, and our relationship with the environment. Yeah, definitely can understand what you're feeling in terms of the wildfires in, in California and just how central it's going to become to our study in terms of an Australian context, the 2019-2020 bushfires, which I think we all thought would be the defining moment of 2020 and how wrong we were. But, you know, we lost not only human life, we lost, you know, hundreds of, of, of lives, both direct and indirect via smoke inhalation. But the estimates now say that we've lost or displaced 3 billion of our native animals as well. And I definitely think in terms of Australian religious studies, we need to be turning not only to those those big faiths that were mentioned in the episode, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, but also um, our Indigenous communities here in Australia with their connection to the land. And that needs to be a central part of our study on climate changes, as Dr. Gretel Van Weeren put it in the episode. Now, we have a bit of a different episode coming up next week. What do we have coming up next week, Dave? Well, next week we turn back the clock uh, to the beginnings of Christianity. Uh, Sidney Castile has spoken with uh, William Arnold about ancient Christian origins, a heterogeneous history. And this will be a really interesting look at um, the formative years of um, early Christianity and how um, they're a little bit different than, than we, we generally think about. So we're delighted to uh, share that with you next time. Uh, and until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for listening. For listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.